Hello, and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast, your source for interviews with people from all across the tropical fish keeping hobby. I'm your host, Randy Reed. Please subscribe and check out all previous episodes on Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, or AquarisPodcast.com. You can also check out additional content by following the Aquarius Podcast Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts. If you like what you hear, please rate and leave a review for the show. Enjoy the interview. Good evening. Today is May 21st, 2018. I'm actually in the home of Joe Ferdenzi from the American Killifish Association. You might remember that name, and hopefully you listen to that episode. That would be episode 7. This is going to be a fairly uh, on-the-spot kind of recording, so uh, my plan is to really not do any editing and let you listen to just the raw um, cut of this, this talk. So, uh, Joe Ferdenzi and his wife, Anita, were wonderful enough to, to invite me into their home um, here in New York to have a lovely dinner and to tour Joe's fish room. And in Joe's fish room, not only does he have amazing tanks, wonderful killifish, um, he's got a Lake Tanganyika tank, he's got a beautiful Lake uh, Malawi tank, uh, but he has an absolute treasure trove of um, aquarium tropical fish related books and um, kind of oddities and just pieces of aquarium uh, paraphernalia, for lack of a better word, uh, throughout the ages. And so uh, Joe actually does give a talk on the aquarium history, and he's kind enough that after dinner and after a couple of espressos, <laughs> the proper espresso, uh, <laughs> Joe, Joe's got some time this evening to, uh, to talk to me about that. So Joe, thank you very much again. Um, and, uh, and I will say this, and I'll stop talking. You are now the first guest to appear twice on the Aquarius <laughs> podcast. Well, that's so, quite an honor. Randy, that's quite an honor. It comes with no, it comes with no monetary prize or anything of that nature. But just know that uh, um, I truly appreciate it as always. So, Joe, thank you very much again for joining me on the Aquarius Podcast. Oh, thanks, Randy. It's it's a pleasure. Uh, it's great to, to have you over and uh, you know share uh, our mutual interest in this hobby and have a wonderful meal together. You know, it's terrific. Yep. Um, so, a, as you said. My fish room is um, partly uh, also a museum of aquarium artifacts, books, magazines, all kinds of things that, for the most part, I've just picked up from you know be- years of being in the hobby and having um, many, many friends and acquaintances who... Uh, have all kinds of uh, old things that represent uh, developments in the hobby, such as different kinds of aquariums, brass aquariums, stainless steel ones, um, and uh, just I, I just as a child, I, I generally had an interest in history, uh, so that when it came to my uh, growth in this hobby. I, it, it was just natural for me to have an interest in the history of this hobby. And uh, I have to say that I think our hobby, the aquarium hobby, has a very unique history. It, it's, 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 I think it's different from other kinds of hobbies in the way it evolved and the way it's grown and the way it continues to evolve. Now, um, as with many things in America... Um, our, our hobby had its uh, origins in, in England, um, and primarily in Victorian England. Um, you know, at the time, um, you kind of have to step back to understand how, why this hobby became so prominent in Victorian England. First of all, you have to imagine a time when people for entertainment had to do things live. In other words... There were no recordings. If you wanted to hear music, you had to have someone play it for you live. So in your home, you might have a piano, and in the evenings, somebody would play the piano, and you would have music, and you would sing. You would read a newspaper, but the newspapers had no color photographs or photographs at all, for that matter. So your your view of the, of things that were happening elsewhere in the world were limited to these black and white sketches, you know. Um, so um, 
You can imagine when, when people first realized that in their home they could have this 3D slice of nature in color, in living color. It, it, was, it was a phenomenon. Um, and especially in Victorian England, um, what was going on was you had this um, global empire. You know, England had outposts in virtually every corner of the world. And they would send out ships, because of course England was a maritime power. They would send out ships to do uh, trading and exploration and other things. But they would almost always send a naturalist with the ship. Because they figured, hey, as long as we're spending the money (laughs) to send these ships out to the far-flung corners of the world, we might as well get as much out of it as we can, which includes studying the natural world. And maybe our naturalists will discover plants or fauna that might have commercial value or might have uh, medicinal value or whatever. So they would send out naturalists with these ships. In fact, that's that's what Darwin was when he went on his trip on the uh, HMS Beagle. He was uh, a young man who they put on the ship as a naturalist. Uh, but that wasn't the main mission of the HMS Beagle. Was not to uh, its main mission was not to study nature. That was just an ancillary thing they did. But the reports of these naturalists, you know, they would. They would preserve, you know, they would capture and kill animals and then preserve their skins. They would make drawings of them. They would preserve the skeletons and then they would be shipped back to England. So you can imagine in, the, in this era, they were discovering all these exotic animals, all these exotic plants from all over the world. And this craze developed in, in Victorian England for natural history. They would flock to botanical gardens. They would flock to public aquariums and zoos and museums with all these skulls and skins in them because, again, this is the only way to see the thing in color in three dimensions, okay? Um, so as an outgrowth of that, people became interested in keeping, at first, things like ferns and other uh, exotic plants in cases made out of glass. And then somebody figured out hey, if we make these glass cases watertight, we can keep aquatic plants and organisms in them. And this began the aquarium craze uh, in Victorian England. And, you know, it it reached such a popularity that, of course, then people had to start writing books about it because people wanted to learn how to keep an aquarium. And so people who had a little more expertise in this would start to write books. And the first uh, aquarium book in English was published in 1854. So that's how far back the origins of our hobby in America go. They go back to 1854 in England. And what, what is the name of that book if anybody wanted to try to do some eBay or garage sale explorations to try to find this well, treasure trove, I would yeah. imagine, if it's... <laughs> Somehow well, available. It's, it's got the, a very exotic title. It's called The Aquarium <laughs> by a guy named Goss, G-O-S-S-E. Hey, when you're the first in the game, I guess you can you, you <laughs> yeah, got to take the good names. That's right. So I forgot his first name off the top of my head right now, but his last name was Goss. It, I think his first name was Philip, but I, I'm not 100% sure. But his last name was definitely Goss, G-O-S-S-E. Anyway, he publishes his book in 1854. It, it sells very well, so he, he publishes a second edition in, in 1856. And But by then, that same interest in aquariums had traveled across the Atlantic to, to the United States. And in 1857, the first two aquarium books are published in America. They're published in the same year, 1857. One of them was called... The Family Aquarium, and right now off the top of my head, I forgot what the other one was called. But you can see that the craze for aquariums traveled over the Atlantic pretty quickly because the first English book is published in 1854, and the first American books 
are published in 1857, only three years apart. <clears throat> and one of the uh, people who really promoted uh, aquariums in the early days was none other than the famous P.T. Barnum, you know, the sucker is born, you know, every minute guy. Uh, and so he opened a public aquarium on Broadway in Manhattan. It was public in the sense that any member of the public could go and see the exhibits, although, of course, you had to pay an admission fee. P.T. Barnum wasn't doing this as as a charity, you know. And listeners, if you don't know who P.T. Barnum is, not going to shame you, but uh, Google it. Google right. P.T. Barnum. <laughs> Yeah, he was you, a, you probably know who he is or uh, what he's yeah. famous for. He was a legendary showman and um, and huckster or whatever you want to call him. So uh, he opens his public aquarium, and uh, and then the first um, public not-for-profit aquarium is opened in Manhattan as well in eighteen. I forget when exactly what year, but it was I don't know. 1870s, I want to say. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. But it was opened in an old um, fort at the bottom of Manhattan in Battery Park. Uh, and uh, it, it was a round building. And uh, they set up the first uh, not-for-profit public aquarium there. And then the, 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 the craze spread to other cities and so forth. But um, in the beginning... Uh, New York City was really a hub uh, for the development of the aquarium hobby. And you see this, that by like 1900, 1910, there's all these uh, stores and people making tanks and uh, selling goldfish and whatever they had, rudimentary things they had in those days, um, ceramic ornaments and plants and things like that. Joe, I have a, I have a question mm-hmm. for you. So... Even going back to the Victorian age, I'm very curious to know, um, and maybe it's different in each of the the kind of decades or the the ages, but how accessible was a home aquarium to the masses, right, from from a price point? Because I guess Mm -hmm. when I think of Victorian age, Mm -hmm. when I think of them having some of the first home aquaria, that almost rings or or smells to me of conspicuous consumption. Right, right. Well, Um, that's it, you know. No, that's an excellent question. In fact, um, the the hobby, even in America, was not was for middle class people. Uh, first of all, yes, the tanks were were not cheap. Um, you could get bowls, glass bowls, relatively inexpensive, but as we all know, bowls have a limited capacity for holding fish. So, and you had to have time to take care of the aquarium. Uh, so this. It was a leisure thing, uh, and and yes, it was a middle class thing for sure. And here's the other part of it that your question leads to: in the early days of the hobby, especially in England, most aquarium keepers were women, <laughs> uh, because of course they were the ones who took care of the house, and aquariums were considered home adornments. So. It's kind of counterintuitive to what we know the hobby to be today, where it's dominated by by men. Um, but in the early days of the hobby, it it was women who played a leading role. And nowadays, the women actually frown upon the aquariums when we, when we put them up. The last thing that they would consider it to be would be home adornment, right? Uh, and here's the, yeah, and here's the other thing that's counterintuitive about the early days of the hobby. Nowadays, freshwater aquariums are much more prevalent than marine aquariums. But in the early days of the hobby, marine aquariums were more prevalent. And this makes sense when you think about the time. If you're in England, you're on an island, you're surrounded by seawater. You could go down to any local beach, and and people in Victorian England, the middle class, used to do this by the score... They would, on Saturdays and Sundays, or mostly Sundays, they would go down to the beaches and collect their own specimens for their aquarium. Because you could go into tidal pools and collect starfish and crabs and different kinds of invertebrates. And at one time, 
most home aquariums had more invertebrates than fish because the invertebrates were easier to catch. Um, and uh, do you think the so in London they have the main river that runs through London? Is it mm-hmm. the, the, the River Thames? Yeah. So right. what, in Victorian ages, was it heavily as polluted as as I think it was in that time? It period? probably was very polluted. But here's the other thing: freshwater fish in England are for the most part uh, kind of large right. and or boring looking. Okay, uh, so freshwater aquariums were not that popular. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, if if you're going to have uh, uh, an aquarium and you're keeping, let's say, I don't know what fish are from England, a tench, let's say, it's basically a silvery fish. You know, it looks like a sardine. Now compare that to a colorful starfish or anemone that you can collect in your, your rock, tidal rock pools. They're far more colorful and interesting looking than your silvery you know, freshwater fish. So th- there wasn't a lot of, of uh, you know, of that going on as much as they were collecting from the seashore. So, yes, in the early days of the hobby, uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, um, it was a middle-class hobby. You had to have some spare change in order to buy the aquarium and or the fish, and, and then you had to have the spare time. Uh, a working-class pla- person including the, the wife of a working-class household, they just didn't have the leisure time. They didn't have servants, so they didn't have the leisure time for an aquarium the way a middle-class person who, you know, in those days, even a middle-class family might have a maid or, or something, you know. Servants were much more common in those days. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, definitely something that, uh, you know, appealed to middle-class and upper-class people um but um so you know then the hobby for um really took off in the 30s uh in the late 20s and 30s because then what was happening was um different aquarium companies and and primarily in places like germany they were sending people out specifically to collect exotic freshwater aquarium fishes from places like Africa and South America. And once these exotic freshwater fishes became available, um, and their beauty and their exoticness really catapulted the hobby forward. And uh, also uh, aquarium tanks began to be made on a much more commercial scale, so they were a little cheaper and everything. And uh, the 30s uh, in America were definitely a, uh, a heyday for this hobby. I mean, you have to read the literature, the newspapers, uh, the books of the time to understand just how popular our hobby was in the decade of the 30s. Um, just a couple of examples to illustrate this. Uh, probably the most famous aquarium book that's ever been published in the United States is the famous uh, William T. Innes book called Exotic Aquarium Fishes. This book went through 19 editions. Um, Anyway, but the first edition of it was published in May of 1935. And prior to that, in... In, in January of 1932, Innes started publishing uh, his famous magazine, The Aquarium. So all of this happened in the 30s. And, for example, when he started publishing The Aquarium magazine in 1932, he did something that was revolutionary at the time and helped make this magazine so popular. On the front cover of every month's issue, there was a color illustration, some would call it a photograph, of an aquarium fish. Now, the rest of the the inside of the magazine was all black and white photography or black and white drawings, uh, but the cover had a color photo. And now we're so inundated with media you know, that we don't appreciate the fact that back in 1932, 
a color photo of an aquarium fish was unheard of. It was revolutionary. So, you know, people just wanted to buy the magazine if for nothing else, just for the color cover with a photo of an aquarium fish. And when he published uh, Exotic Aquarium Fishes in 1935, he illustrated the book with these color photos, which no book prior to that had ever done. And, uh, you know, so all of this helped introduce people not only to the fish, but to their magnificent colors, which is, after all, one of the main reasons people keep aquarium fishes. Yes, I mean, some people like to keep an aquarium fish because it's odd-looking or has odd behavior or interesting breeding habits. But the vast majority of people are gravitate towards tropical fish because of their amazing colors. And, of course, you can't appreciate amazing colors unless you see a color photograph of the animal, you know. So, um, I mean, this the hobby was so popular... It, there were there were like weekly newspaper columns about the aquarium hobby in the leading newspapers of the day all over the United States. I, I think that's something right there that for me, being a Seattle native, if I were mm-hmm. to open up my daily issue of the Seattle Times mm-hmm. and to find somewhere um, in that in that newspaper and not as like a special insert, but mm-hmm. actually a regularly featured column about something in the aquarium hobby, mm-hmm. I mean, if, you know, as an aquarist, if you can just kind of transport yourself into how cool that would mm-hmm. be, I mean, that, you know, that yeah. obviously we've, we've come, we've come away since then, but that's, that's really cool to hear. Sure. And, um, absolutely. And, uh, people, you know, at high stations, you know, in, in life, like medical doctors, all kinds of professionals, not only kept aquarium fish, they wrote about them. They would write books about them. Um, so it was popular not only with middle-class people, but it was, uh, it was very popular with uh, rich people. Um, in fact, um, it was so popular that in 1934, one of America's foremost fiction writers, a guy named S.S. Van Dyne, he created this fictional detective known as Philo Vance. And he wrote a series of books starring this fictional detective named Philo Vance. And each one of these novels was a bestseller. Each one of these novels was made into a Hollywood movie. Well, this guy, S.S. Van Dyne, whose whose real name was um, Willard uh, Huntington Wright, um, he kept fish. He and his wife kept aquariums. They had like 40 aquariums in their duplex apartment on Central Park West, okay? Obviously, he had become very wealthy from uh, the sale of his books. Now, in one of his Philo Vance stories that was published in 1934 called The Dragon Murder Case, one of the main characters in this book is a millionaire who has a huge estate uh, in Upper Manhattan, and this guy has a fish room. That's his hobby. He breeds fish. <laughs> and it and it parallels what the writer and his wife were doing, which was breeding fish. They were actually members of the New York Aquarium Society, which met at the Museum of Natural History on Central Park West, which is probably not too far from where they lived. Um, and uh, this book was made into a Hollywood movie in the same year. And if you were to ever get a copy of this movie called The Dragon Murder Case, you would see scenes involving aquariums, including a scene in which three of the characters are, wi- are watching two male Siamese fighting fish fighting each other, okay? Which kind of parallels the plot of the story, which involves a deadly love triangle. Spoiler you know? alert. Uh-oh. <laughs> Although if you haven't seen the movie from then by now, yeah. I guess don't worry. I'm not going to give it away, but that you know the 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 plot it centers around a love triangle, which which is made obvious in, in the book, you know, and everything's and in the movie. But um, uh, another example of of how popular the hobby was in the 30s in the public consciousness in 1934, 
they made a movie called Imitation of Life, which was based on a best-selling novel from a few years earlier. And this this uh, movie starred Claudette Colbert, who was, you know, top of the list of Hollywood stars, and a guy named Warren William, who was also a very popular actor in his day. Anyway, in this movie, Warren William, who plays the male love interest in the movie, what's his profession? He's an ichthyologist, okay? And in one of the scenes, they you see him in his fish room. His fish room. He's, he's standing next to fish tanks, okay? And, and the reason this has any significance, just to show you, they remade this movie, this imitation of life, in 1959, starring, this time, Lana Turner. And the male love interest, he wasn't an ichthyologist anymore, because by 1959, it, it wasn't as popular as it was in the 30s, so the love interest in the 1959 version what does he do for a living? He's not an ichthyologist anymore. He's a photographer. <laughs> so uh, so the hobby really took off in the 30s. All the magazines, all the books that came out in the 30s, a prodigious amount of literature. It was in magazines would feature it in their uh, Sunday issue or the, on the cover of a magazine. It was just wildly popular. Um, and I'm trying to actually draw a comparison to what what the aquarium aquarium hobby in the 30s would be most comparable to in modern standards in today's time and mm-hmm. i can't think of i can't think of anything that maybe as americans i guess like mm-hmm. my frame of reference that right. we hold in the same manner that they did aquariums in the 30s where it kind of spanned all walks yeah, of life it, and it was yes. this kind of binding thing yeah, in, it's, the, it's in the family household i don't yeah it's hard to yeah it's hard to make a comparison i don't know our, but, our love obsession and discussion of Netflix and yeah. binge-worthy shows? I don't know. I don't yeah, know. We, we've become more enamored of virtual reality, whereas an aquarium is reality, you know. Um, and that was the difference, of course, back then. They didn't have the Internet. They didn't have television. They didn't have any of the things that we have nowadays that we're so used to, where, you know, we get to see virtual reality on our television screen, on our iPad screen on our phone screens, you know, back then they didn't have that. Uh, You know, you could see color photographs in these magazines and books that I just mentioned, but of course it was nothing like seeing a real aquarium. And uh, yeah, it's that's that's a good point. I don't really know what we could compare it to today, Um, but back then, I, I assure you, if you look at any of the popular literature, and I'm not just talking about aquarium books and aquarium periodicals. I'm talking about general literature. For example, in in March of 1931, National Geographic published an issue of their magazine, and we all know, even to this day, National Geographic is one of our leading magazines, and it certainly was back in the 30s. Anyway, in this March 1931 issue, they had two articles out of like seven two articles about the hobby. I'm not talking about tropical fish. It was They were about our hobby. It's full of fantastic black and white photos of uh, aquarium society people, meetings, pet shops, uh, accoutrements for the aquarium. I mean, it, it, that's how popular it was that a, a big national magazine like National Geographic would actually publish uh, an issue with two articles about the hobby in it. And then, of course, the war came along, World War II, and uh, everything slowed down. I mean, um, uh, people, companies that were making aquariums uh, out of metal had to shift the production because the metal was needed for other things. Um, I know from reading things and from talking to people that were alive in that time period, they used to have metal drives where people would bring metal objects that they were discarding and and they they would get recycled into things that were needed for the war effort and that is how a lot of our antique aquariums disappeared <laughs> not the really expensive ones cuz nobody would throw those away but the the less expensive smaller aquariums that were made out of metals they were donated to these drives and destroyed and recycled so uh, that's part of the reason why some of these uh, 
aquariums from the 30s are not that easy to find because uh, you, you would think they would be since it was such a popular hobby. But that's what happened during World War II. And then after the war was over, um, the, the hobby started to pick up again. Uh, and the 50s were another golden era for the hobby where companies now that the war was over could go back to manufacturing things and they started manufacturing much more sophisticated aquariums, um, primarily stainless steel. Stainless steel became very big after the war was over um, because there was all this availability uh, of people being able to manufacture things out of stainless steel. And then they started making the first uh, really uh, good air pumps. They started making filters. Uh, First, they were made out of glass and metal. Later, they started making things out of plastic. Um, The first heaters, thermostatic heaters, started coming out in the 50s. So there were a lot of advancements uh, in the hobby, technological ones, in the 50s that helped people keep their tropical fish nice and warm and keep the water filtered and things that weren't available before. And again, even though by then there was television and there was more color photography, the aquarium hobby was still very, very popular, uh, mostly on the freshwater side. Um, But uh, that's when, for example, in 1952, Herbert Axelrod published in September of 1952 the first issue of Tropical Fish Hobbyist, which, as we know, later became, you know, America's leading hobby magazine. But it started in 1952. And uh, Innes was still publishing different editions of his classic work uh, into the 50s. But then Axelrod, his publishing company, started uh, producing lots of aquarium books, which helped popularize the hobby. Um, and uh, back in those days, they, you know, department stores had pet sections. Not like nowadays when you go into a department store, there's no pet sections. Back then, the leading department stores in, in every city had a pet department. And a lot of these departments, of course, featured tropical fish. So that helped spur interest in it because you'd walk into a department store especially if you were a kid and you'd bug your mother to get you a a fish and a tank and you know etc because it was right there in front of you in the department store Uh, and um, aquarium societies started to proliferate in the 1950s and they would hold shows and and promote the hobby that way uh, just as they did in the 30s. In the 30s, they would have a lot of big-time tropical fish shows. Uh, and in the 50s, it was the same thing. And uh, and these fish shows, so you've got some pictures um, around your fish room mm-hmm. of the fish shows from the 30s and you right. know, from, from times uh, right. much farther back in time than in present. So uh, one of the things that I instantly noticed is it, everybody there is dressed in their better than their <laughs> Sunday best, right? I mean, these... The, the gentlemen, the ladies that are in these yeah, pictures, yeah. I mean, they are... Yeah, they're they dressed like, uh, right, right. They're dressed to impress. I mean, yeah, the they're suits, dressed in the suits and ties. I but mean, that was commonplace back then that, you know, if you look at, for example, a photograph of uh, people attending a baseball game in the 1930s, they're all wearing uh, jackets and ties mm-hmm. and hats, <laughs> you know, but they're all wearing jackets and ties. People didn't dress as informally in public anyway, they didn't dress as informally as they do now. They weren't wearing yoga pants. No, and... <laughs> no, no, no t-shirts, you know, no, no. But, you know, so, yeah, so the 50s was, I consider that another golden era for our hobby. But the, the fish, and I'm sorry, Joe, mm-hmm. but these fish club events, though, they were a big deal, though, right? Oh, yeah. Like, it was oh, a t- t- People it was took a them seriously. To the competitions, you know, who would get first place, and they they were serious competitions back then. People really um, uh, prized their ability to show beautiful fish, uh, and people would turn out for these things, again, uh, because you couldn't go on the Internet 
and look at fish pictures ad nauseum. Uh, even w- with the books they had, there was still a limit to what you could observe in a book. There's nothing like seeing a fish live. You know, I mean, our videos and things and our TV programs, you know, they're, they're pretty good because you can see the fish moving and everything. So it's not like a still photograph, but still, you know, in the 50s, they didn't have that. So if you wanted to see the fish moving and lifelike and everything, you had to go to a fish show. And uh, I mean, we're just watching your Lake Malawi tank. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's one thing to see these labs and peacocks, a full color picture. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the, the photograph is not going to do it justice because of the behavior. It's almost yeah. distracting how cool they are to watch as right. I sit here and engage with you in this conversation. Um, I I mean, I couldn't imagine what, you know, somebody's first experience. I mean, if we all try to think back of when that's the first time we saw African Mm -hmm. cichlids or Mm -hmm. any fish for that matter, but you know, to be able to see them, to not have all the YouTube videos, to go back on all of the, Mm -hmm. the internet pictures, um, and only have maybe one photograph. Maybe it's even a grainy color photograph at best Mm -hmm. of a specimen. Um, but to actually see them in person is probably, was, was something, uh, really cool. Yeah, and then and then of course what happened during the fifties was air transportation, which made it easier for fish that were collected in exotic places like South America and Africa to be transported back to Europe or the United States for distribution into the hobby. So, for example, you know in the thirties they had discovered the neon tetra, which was like the star of its day, and the angelfish which was another big star of its day. Well, in the 50s, they discovered the Cardinal Tetra and the Discus, which were huge aquarium stars. So, you see, each epic had these fish that people went nuts over uh, that helped spur it. In the 50s, also, another big development was fancy guppy breeding. Uh, People, you know, uh, had learned how to develop uh, that that rather modest-looking little guppy from Trinidad into this amazing uh, animal with flowing fins and solid colors. And the guppy hobby was huge in the 1950s. And this helped spur the hobby in general uh, because guppies were colorful, easy to take care of, didn't require huge aquariums. Um, Even a person of modest means could now have a small aquarium with colorful little fish uh, that would breed for you because uh, we know guppies, that's what they do. <laughs> what, what do we know of, you, you know, going back as far as you'd like to on this question mm-hmm. of the home success rate of keeping fish? I mean, you, you can go on any forum and um, any Facebook page today and see the struggles that some people have with keeping fish, keeping them healthy, ick, mm-hmm. um, dropsy, the bloat, right. all of the various issues. Yes. And we have, I mean, we are at the cutting edge of aquarium technology, right? And the present time is when we're most cutting. Mm-hmm. I can go and buy a Fluval FX6, which is one of the most cutting edge canister filters ever made. We've got LED lights up the wazoo. We have <laughs> all of this amazing mm-hmm. technology, mm-hmm. especially when it's put in comparison to what you see um, of 10, 20 years back. And especially if we go back to the 30s and 50s, like mm-hmm. I see some of the equipment that you have here that, that is, you know, display antique equipment. Mm-hmm. Um but the survival rate. So, do we have any sense of, um, you know, the home aquarist uh, ability to keep these species alive? I mean, it, it seems like for the hobby to continue to grow, like they're not just buying fish every week because they're dying, mm-hmm. right? Like there, there's some. Level- yeah, no, no. I mean, they had. I mean, first of all, the stock back then of certain fish was was very good because they were coming from the wild, so the genetic makeup was very good or another thing that started happening was uh, a lot of florida fish farms and uh back then you know the the florida fish were very healthy and everything so with certain fish i think there was a lot of success primarily with things like live bears platies guppies swordtails things like that maybe some other fish they People weren't as successful with them, but because um, when you read the magazines, you see the kind, you know, they would have uh, question and answer columns, mm-hmm. and um, and also you would see what people would write about in their columns, and 
yes, I mean, just like today, there are people who don't have success with keeping fish, um, usually because they don't follow basic rules and principles, and, and that's why they get into trouble. Granted that there are some fish that are so difficult to keep that even uh, experienced people have difficulty with them. Uh, but there were also a lot of successes back in the 50s. You know, I mean, one of my very dear friends is a gentleman named Rosario LaCourt, who's from New Jersey, and he began uh, breeding a lot of fish in the 1950s, and uh, he's still breeding fish to this day. He's, he's almost 90, uh, and uh, he bred a lot of barbs and tetras and killifish and whatever anybody gave him, he was able to breed it successfully. And, and we're talking about the 1950s because uh, he was good at what he did. He fed his fish correctly, a lot of live food, a lot of good food, a lot of water changes. Um, he would pay attention. He would pick up on things that an average person might not pick up on in terms of the behavior of the fish or what they like to eat or what kind of water conditions they like. So there were many, many successful aquarists in the 50s, and of course their breeding successes are helped promote the hobby as well because then if they bred a fish and made it available, then other people could acquire them. And like I said, and then the other thing was the air transportation. The more pet shops were opening up uh, because uh, it was easier to get fish uh, to sell. Um, so, yeah, people had the same kind of difficulties they have today. Fish would get sick. They didn't know as much as we know now. So curing fish back in the 50s was a hit or miss kind of thing compared to today when we know so much more about pathogens and antibiotics and things of that sort. But, you know, uh, look, in my own fish room, once in a while, and this happens mostly with some of the annual killifish, I'll get some outbreak of velvet, which is a parasitic thing similar to ick, and then I'll break out my uh, go-to remedy, which is good old-fashioned malachite green. But other than that, I rarely have a need for medicines because if you do certain basic things you're not going to have a lot of sick fish and these aquarists from the 50s who were successful at breeding fish they followed these basic rules which is don't overcrowd your fish uh, feed them good food uh, do water changes and you know 90% of the time your fish will be fine if you follow those basic rules um so, uh, so it may be kind of an anti-marketing uh, campaign for some of the, uh, the the manufacturers out there, but if they could do fish keeping and fish breeding well back then without the fancy technology mm -hmm. that we have today, mm -hmm. that should kind of tell us that we shouldn't necessarily have to rush out to buy the newest, sexiest well, piece of equipment. Yeah, yeah. Follow the basics. Do your right, water right. You could. Although, let me say this about all that stuff: it's good. I mean, <laughs> it helps you. Be more successful. I mean, if you have good filters and uh, you can make little mistakes and it won't be fatal, it, it gives you a margin for error. So I, you know, I mean, I use a lot of old-fashioned box filters, but as you can tell from looking at my aquariums, they all have some sort of filtration, whether it's modest or like a box filter or it's more high-tech like a, um, a canister filter, I do believe in that. I do believe it makes for a healthier aquarium and uh, gives you a margin for error. Um, uh, so I do believe in it, and I do believe that um, uh, manufacturers of aquarium equipment have come a long way. I mean, once upon a time, uh, if you had a power filter, it was like running a refrigerator and use that much power. Nowadays, I'm happy to see that most of the equipment is very energy efficient. Uh, uh, the filters, the power filters use very little wattage. We are converting most of our lighting to LED 
uh, lighting, which is very energy efficient. I mean, back in the 50s, they had the most prevalent kind of lighting was incandescent lighting. They had fluorescent lighting, but it was very expensive. So very few people could afford that. I'm going to make a bad joke. In the Victoria, Victorian area, era, did they ever do par meter testings on the <laughs> whale blubber lighting that they would use? <laughs> yeah, whale blubber. It's 1030 at night here, so uh, I'm, I'm allowed a few bad jokes. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so no, I think all this uh, modern equipment we have is terrific. And you, I in, actually, you know, encourage you to use it. Uh, I mean, without lighting, you can't raise aquarium plants. And I love aquarium plants. So I'm so happy about, you know, having the uh, ability to uh, convert a lot of my lights over to LEDs because uh, they're so energy efficient and they don't produce heat. That's another thing. Who, 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 what do you, why would you want to heat up your fish room more than necessary or your tanks? Uh, so, uh, and the filters, like I said, nowadays, I, they're, they're terrific because they use so little energy. I mean, I've got filters around here that use like three or four watts. It's amazing compared to the old filters. Yeah. Um, so, no, no, I mean, the technology thing I think is fantastic. Yes, it's true. You can keep an aquarium without fancy equipment, absolutely, but then you've got to stay on top of it. You know, you, you can't let the water changes go. You, you've really got to make sure your tank's not overcrowded, you know, that kind of stuff. So, um, but, yeah, so, you know, and I, I think the hobby started to trail off a little bit in the 80s. I mean, it was still very popular when I got started which was in the mid-60s. A lot of kids my age had aquariums. Me and my friends, we would walk to aquarium stores. We would take the subway to aquarium stores. You know, it was just a, a very popular hobby. And, um, and we were always fascinated uh, by, you know, what fish we'd find in the store or whatever. And, you know, again, there were more products uh, available they started importing things from overseas, like Germany, like Tetramin started was introduced in in the '60s, which became a very popular food because up until then, almost no one had ever heard of flake food um, uh, until that came along, and um, so the the availability of all these different products, and of course, the the more popular it was, it it the more the prices got reduced for both fish and equipment, and tanks, and food, and everything. So that made it so that even a person of modest means could have uh, aquariums and, and keep tropical fish. Um, and, and, you know, that's one another thing I like about the aquarium hobby. I find it to be very uh, sort of egalitarian, you know, uh, people at all different levels of economic uh, success can have aquariums and be just as successful as anybody else. You don't need to be rich to be a successful aquarist. That's for sure. Um, and uh, no, the and and you know, aquarium societies have always played an important role in the development of our hobby. Whether it's from having shows, publishing magazines, which aquarium societies have always done, or like the San Francisco Aquarium Society. They're the first ones that developed uh, and marketed uh, brine shrimp. But you have cis. a can. Yes, I, I have one of their original cans from the 1940s. And it says, you know, distributed by the San Francisco Aquarium Society. And we know as hobbyists, if you're breeding fish, the ability to hatch uh, brine shrimp cysts is extremely important in breeding, especially killifish people. We, we, we live by that. Thing. If I don't know what we would do if we couldn't hatch out brine shrimp, you know, uh, for our fry, especially for annual killifish. So uh, aquarium societies have always played a very large role in the aquarium, the development of the aquarium hobby. And uh, anybody nowadays who belongs to an aquarium society is pushing that history forward. I, I still think even in spite of all the media we have today, all the, you know, the 
websites, all the YouTube videos and everything, I still think it's very important to belong to an aquarium society, to make personal contact with people. Uh, This is how I get a lot of my fish, is from other people in the hobby uh, who are kind enough to share their fish with me. And I try to do the same, you know, when I have breeding successes. I try to share my stuff with other people in the hobby. And uh, we're, we're keeping this, uh, this, the history of this hobby alive. Whether you realize it or not, if you are a member of an aquarium society or you make a YouTube video or you're doing what Randy's doing, you're keeping the history of this hobby going forward and uh, hopefully uh, it, it, it's a hobby that will always be around. I think it will be. I, I do think so. It may not be as popular as it was in the 30s or the 50s, but I think in spite of all the distractions we have today from virtual reality, there's something about an aquarium that is never going to lose its appeal for a certain group of people. Uh, and... Uh, you know, it's great to to be part of it. Yeah, I, I mean, we could have a whole conversation on just the whole, the fundamental reasons of why we keep fish in aquariums. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know how you could argue with somebody with having, you know, again, this, this Malawi tank that, I, that I've been looking at mm-hmm. this whole time we've been talking. I mean, it's absolutely captivating. And when you go in people's homes and they have a fish tank within view it's it's so hard not to look at that mm-hmm. um and just spend some time really appreciating the fish in it mm-hmm. uh, and for my part you know i don't know how impactful i can be but um you know I, I want people to join their local fish clubs i want to get more people in this hobby um, i want people to partake and enjoy in keeping fish and mm-hmm. you know if they choose to breed if they choose to share choose to sell for profit um, whatever, but just enjoying the fish as they are is, is such a uh, is such a fun experience. Yeah, you know, seeing now that you mention it, that is a pretty nice tank. <laughs> <laughs> I must say, yeah. I don't know if I get a chance to just sit here and stare at it because, as you can tell, with sixty aquariums, there's always a lot of work to do. But uh, but I enjoy it. You know, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah, I know. It's awesome. Joe, you have been a fantastic again. Um, you've opened up your house and, and your hospitality to me. Um, you've opened up your fish room and just all the excellent uh, memorabilia that you have. And so I'm uh, forever indebted to you. And um, hopefully, you know, I might be able to convince some people. Maybe we'll fly out to Seattle and have you speak at the uh, GSAS sometime. I think that would be awesome. I think we're okay. looking to fill our 2019 calendar. So I, I am a chairperson now. Oh oh so, oh oh! You didn't you didn't hear that on the no? I'm the care, I'm, I'm the chair of the Cares program. Oh my so. god! <laughs> oh, it's great, it on up. Randy. It's been great to have you over, Joe. Thank you really so it's much. Been a pleasure, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. All right, you take care now. Okay. Thank you again for listening to the Aquarius podcast. As always, get involved in your local fish club help grow this wonderful hobby, and have fun with other fish nerds.